All right. If you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 1. And uh, uh, if you don't have your Bible, you can grab one under the chair in front of you. There is a Bible there. Hey, I want to make an announcement that uh, I did not make, and it's one of our most important announcements. And that is that we have a men's breakfast on Saturday. And so, you know, I just, we just don't want you men to think that we only care about women in this church. So the women are doing their thing, but we have men's stuff too, and it, those breakfasts are just so good, and I would encourage you to prioritize being there. I'm looking forward to, uh, to the men's breakfast on Saturday. Okay, so um, we're going to be going through the days of Genesis. We covered Genesis uh, the, the first four days. We're going to be looking uh, today at day five and six. And uh, just as we think through why Genesis is so important, why is it important that we read Genesis? And why is it important that we think about it rightly? And just to start with, it's God's Word. God's Word is inspired. It is an authority. Everything that God tells us is true. And everything that He tells us, we really need to understand correctly. And we do our best, and sometimes we mess things up. But those, that is not something we should ever take lightly. And the Bible tells us that the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. And so um, God didn't give seminaries or commentators the role of, of supporting the truth. And often the average Christian can read the Bible. They read it, they read what it says, and it's understandable. <laughs> Do you know why the Bible's understandable? Because God wrote it that way. And that's not to mean that there aren't things that are challenging, that there aren't things that we really need to dig into and wrestle through. But the Bible was written in a language, and language has words with meaning. And it has grammar uh, that communicates meaning. And it is amazing how you can have people that, that the more educated they are and the more studied they are, the more they can read what the Bible plainly says and then say, but it doesn't mean that. And as Christians, it is our responsibility to read the Bible with the help of the Holy Spirit and to understand it. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be experts, that we shouldn't be trained, but when you get somebody who opens up the Bible and says, I know you think this is what it's saying, but it's not saying that. And you just read it, you read the whole context of Scripture, and it all points to the same thing. Uh, you need to be careful about following people who do that, who are dismissive toward the inspired Word of God. And so uh, we, need, and we also need to be finding people. Uh, the Bible in 2 Timothy 2.2 says that we need to um, entrust faithful men who will teach others. And James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, for in doing so you incur a stricter judgment. And I just think it's a tragedy that we have so many people that write books, so many people that teach in seminaries that just disregard God's Word. And uh, we need to make sure that as believers that we don't do that and that we don't follow the people who are encouraging us to do that. We need to read the Bible, and we need to believe it. Um, so uh, there was this study done by the American Psychological Association, and uh, they did this survey. I've referenced this before, but they were doing this survey. This, these are psychologists that, that study marketing. How, how do you market things? How do you get people 
to do things and to change their behavior. And so what they did was uh, they went out and they did this survey where they asked people, hey, how influenced do you think you are by your neighbors? And one of the ways that people responded is they said, yeah, I don't really care about my neighbors and I don't think I'm influenced by them. And uh, so that was kind of how they responded. So then they do this thing where they, they practiced marketing to try to get people to save electricity. And so they handed out a bunch of flyers to houses and said, hey, if you will save electricity, you could save money. It'll help you. And uh, then they did another one and they said, you know, saving electricity will save the planet. So you should save electricity so you could save the planet. And then they said, you know, you should be socially responsible. It's a good thing. You'd be a good person if you saved electricity. And, and then, so they did that. And then they uh, sent out another ad that said, most of your neighbors are saving electricity. You should too. <laughs> and did you know um, when they looked at the results of that survey, none of the first three things on that list influenced any change. No change. But what influenced a significant amount of change was all your neighbors are doing it. Um, so as they looked at this study, one of the things that they said, even though our pri prior survey indicated that residents felt that they would be least influenced by information regarding their neighbor's energy use, this was the only type of door hanger information that led to significantly decreased energy consumption. So the Harvard Business Review wrote an article about this similar concept, and they just said, above all, our results remind us that whenever we attempt to change human behavior, we must go one step beyond seeking to change what a person believes and instead pay attention to, to what they think others believe. So what influences people? What they think everyone else believes. And then it goes on and it says, we are social beings and we care deeply not just about, what our, not just about our neighbors and coworkers, but also about what they think. Um, hey, we're social creatures, right? And uh, we can all talk about peer pressure as it relates to high school and junior high students. One of the things I used to think about as a youth pastor is I would see these kids who all of a sudden they're dressing in all black and they would have their hair like spiked out like huge and, and you're, just, you're looking at them and they would say, well, we want to be different. But what did you notice about the difference? It's like all their friends are doing the same thing. And so they want to be different in a crowd of people who are being different. And so we can look at high school and junior high students and say, man, they are really influenced by peer pressure. Well, guess what you can figure out? And guess what we should all know? Every one of us is influenced by peer pressure. And one of the things that I find is that as I read people who write things about Genesis, it seems to me that there are many Christians that are vastly influenced by culture, by what they think other people think. And they go away and they study. One of the things I think about is to come up with a theistic evolution view of Genesis, um, you have to go study for that. You have to go into an educational institution to come up with that. And no person reads the Bible and thinks, oh, I think we evolved. 
Uh, that never happens. But in educational institutions and among people that are educated, um, you find a huge commitment to that. And it is amazing the gymnastics that people will do. People who write commentaries, people with theological degrees, it is amazing the gymnastics that they will do to try to fit the Genesis narrative, to try to fit evolution into that. It's just like, and they just read the Bible and they say some of the most ridiculous things about things in the Bible. And by the way, these are very educated people. And I think one of the things that happens is people struggle with a desire to be accepted. And when you're studying and you're writing papers and you're, you're a very intelligent person and you're in the education uh, industry, it is important to you that all of your friends don't look at you as an idiot. Um, why? Because people are humans and because people matter to them. I think about what the Bible says. Um, it says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And we all need to think about our company. And I think about the Apostle Paul as he talks about um, what it means to be a faithful minister of Christ. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, the foundation for pleasing God is actually laid in becoming a Christian. Uh, what, is the what does Jesus say? Unless you hate your father, mother, brothers, and sisters, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. What did Jesus say? He said, don't fear people who can kill your body, but fear God who could kill both your body and your soul in hell. And so Jesus says, don't care about the people around you. Care about what God thinks. And so as we read Genesis, uh, one of the things I want to say to you <laughs> is don't care what I think of you. Um, my reading of this passage, my understanding of this passage is not the thing that should drive you. Oh, I can't disagree with Roger. The truth is, who cares what I think? It doesn't actually matter. But what does matter is what God thinks. And for you to be a person that reads through Scripture and then disregards it and puts it through the filter of what you learned in a science class from an evolutionary scientist who hates God, who is determined to explain the world without God, and for you to take that frame of reference and say, I'm going to judge Scripture by this grid that I get from people who refuse to acknowledge that God even exists. And when we think about evolution, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in the future, evolution is statistically impossible but that has no influence on evolutionary scientists. Do you know why? Because there is no God. This is the only way we could have got here. So if, if I was to take you to a gym and say, okay, uh, in order for you to win some money, we got to get a teenager and tell him to kick a soccer ball into the ceiling. It has to hit a rafter and bounce into six different chairs and then from those six different chairs, go through the hoop. Um, we, need, we need somebody to do that. Uh, we would look at that and go, that is statistically impossible. 
But then if we got a kid to go into a gym and kicked it, and the ball actually did that and went into a hoop, uh, we would say, I don't care how, the how statistically impossible it was, it happened, right? Wouldn't we respond that way? And that's how evolutionists approach the impossibility of the theory of evolution. And the difference between my example and evolution is that none of them observed anything. Um, they just say, we know there's no God. This is the only way we could have got here. So let's just work backwards and come up with ideas and theories that will explain what we see in this world without God. And I would just say that for a Christian to take that view and then interpret Genesis through it is a big mistake. Rather than to say, who was there, who described it, who communicated it? God. I will believe what He tells me. So let's uh, dig into uh, Genesis. And just as a reminder, um, I have four major approaches to the book of Genesis. One is that it is an inspired historical description of creation and what actually happened, and that's what I believe it is. A second one, and this is done by, by people who try so hard to reconcile evolution and creation, and, and so they say it's figurative. And there's kind of two ways that people do that, is they'll say it's poetic. And um, another one is to say it's a, it's, a, it's a historical myth, kind of like a parable. It's a myth that didn't really happen, but it's a story that tells us things that God wants us to know. And one of the things I want to say to you is, if you read the account of Genesis, and uh, as you read it and you think about it, if it's a poem, what is it poetically communicating? If it is a historical myth intended to communicate truth, well, in that story, what is it communicating? And what I would tell you is that if it's a poem or if it's a historical myth, what it communicates makes evolution 100% impossible and, and incompatible. And so it doesn't matter actually what your view of this passage is. If you read this passage and if you take from it what it is teaching, it will get you nowhere in reconciling it with the theory of evolution. And can I give you guys a, a little hint? Um, even if it matched perfectly with evolution, <laughs> which it doesn't, do you know how much common ground you can get with an evolutionist? Zero. Because an evolutionist has as their starting presupposition, there is no God. And so if you say, well, God created the world and he used evolution for it, they'll say, you are a fool. Uh, you are a person who believes in, you probably believe in totem poles. And so, um, you know, an evolutionist, you cannot be a Christian and in any way compatible with anybody who holds to the theory of evolution. And so Christians and many educated people, it's like they're working really hard to be accepted by people who will never accept them. And I would just say, first of all, that's futile. And secondly, why would we work so hard to do that? And so that's kind of a, a framework. We'll talk a little bit more about why it's not poetry and some of those other things in the coming weeks. But let's just take a minute and uh, let's continue on. 
Uh, the other two approaches to Genesis is just the atheistic inter uh, interpretation, which just says it's untrue, and anybody who believes it is a fool. Uh, what does the Bible tell us about the fool has said in his heart what? Yeah, so uh, fools are people who don't believe in God. So you sit in, a, in class with a person or you read a book written by somebody with all kinds of educational letters who says they're no God. Just open up that book and say, this person is a fool. Now, that doesn't mean they're unintelligent. doesn't mean that they're not, that they're not smart. doesn't mean that they can't make observations. But they will twist with their intelligence everything possible in order to deny the existence of God. They will use every intellectual ability that they have to deny the existence of God. And that's what Romans 1 tells us, right? Uh, God puts a knowledge inside them. They see God in creation, and then they deny God. Um, so the Bible's already told us that. And then, of course, uh, the last one, and that is that you're God. And what that means is whatever you believe is true. And it's amazing to me how many people who are Christians open up the Bible, they read what plain uh, English grammar, what definitions of words, and then they just say, well, I have a different understanding of that, and they disregard what the Bible actually says. So you have people who actually bring that approach to their own personal study of Scripture, and none of us should do that. So uh, let's jump into the days of creation. And the first thing that we recognize, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and so God made everything out of nothing. And Hebrews tells us, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things which are visible. We understand that God made everything out of nothing because we, we understand that by faith because that's what God tells us. You know, I've heard people say things like, well, in the beginning, there was matter and there was antimatter. And a plus one and a minus one equals zero, so there was nothing. And then nothing, matter and antimatter, blew up and made everything. And uh, what I always try to remind my friends who say that is that you can't use like a math fallacy to say that a matter and antimatter are nothing, because matter is something and so is antimatter. So, so that's not nothing. And what we understand is that God created everything out of nothing. The other thing I think is interesting is God is not arguing for His own, own existence. He doesn't say, please believe in me and let me give you lots of reasons why you should. Uh, God just states His existence. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then on day one, um, Jesus creates the whole universe and He creates light. On the second day, God separates the, 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 the sky, the heavens. And the, the, he creates the sea and the sky. And day three, He creates plants and, and causes the land to appear. And then on day four, He creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. And if you think about those days of creation, there's a lot of people who say that's impossible because where does light come from? Light comes from the sun, right? And uh, so if there's no sun, how can there be light? But God wasn't getting a science book and saying, I want to make light. How can I make light? Uh, the science book says I need a sun. 
So I'm gonna, so I need to make the sun first, and then the sun will give light. That is a completely wrong way to view anything. It would be like saying to a painter uh, who's painting a picture, and he paints all the light, and then he paints the things, and then he comes back and he paints the sun. To say, you can't paint like that. That is not how that works. Don't you know that light comes from the sun? You have to paint the sun first. The thing that we need to recognize is that God is the one who created everything out of nothing. Natural laws are not something that God is bound by. Natural laws are things that God made. So He made light, and then He says, I'm going to make something to give light. And when we read in Revelation about heaven, there is light and there is no sun because God doesn't need a sun for light. And some people would say, you know, I think if people were reading the account of Genesis, they would just know it was untrue because uh, the, the stars and the sun and all that stuff's not made till day four. And I don't think anybody reads, God made everything out of nothing, but He couldn't have made the earth in six days. And He certainly couldn't have made the sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day. Nobody would read this believing that God made everything out of nothing and think those things were hard for God. So it just fits in. How did God do it? Exactly how He said He did it. So, um, uh, and one of the things I think is crazy, anybody, raise your hand if you watched any of those videos, and this, I'm just curious. Okay, so if, if you watch those videos I linked to, and you just think about how massive the universe how many stars, billions of stars. And when you read day four, it says God made the sun and the moon. And it's like this side statement and the stars. When you think about how unbelievably massive the universe is, man, we see God's incredible power and we learn a lot about God's nature. Um, hey, we know that, right? Bible tells us that. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. And so people are without excuse when it comes to believing and knowing that there is a God because there is a world that testifies about God and who He is. So let's jump into day five, and um, let's, let's read this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, let's look at day five. And God said, this is verse 20, and God said, let the water swarm with living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarms. And then there's this phrase, according to their kind. And every winged bird, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And so we have evening and morning, and that is a description of a 24-hour day. I mentioned that last week. Never is the word day used with a number that it doesn't mean 24 hours. And so one of the things that I think about as I'm reading this passage 
is what's the poetic significance of animals that God created and He blesses them and He says, multiply and reproduce after your kind? What's the significance of after your kind? So if we, if we believe that this is a historical account of creation, we would just say, well, that means that um, God created all the birds, and all those birds are going to have babies. They're going to be birds just like them. And God created all the beasts of the field. And so um, the beasts of the field are just like a cow is going to give birth to cows, and a dog is going to give birth to dogs. Everything is going to reproduce after its own kind. So that's what we would understand from that. As we observe life, what do we see? We see that dogs give birth to dogs and cats give birth to cats. According to the theory of evolution, about 50 million years ago, there was a common ancestor to dogs and cats. And uh, do we have any evidence for this? None at all. Um, What evolution does is they look and they say, Um, okay, we observe change within species. If we were to look at that change and think how long would it take for the changes we see to result in something substantially different, well, it would take like 50 million years. And and so then that's, they just say, well, that's what we know happened because we have multiple, we have dogs and cats, and uh, we know that God didn't make them, so what would it take for them to occur? And so they just make stuff up. And for people, it's seven or eight million years ago, and we haven't got to that part, day six, um, but it's the same thing. Seven or eight mil- mil- million years ago, there was a common ancestor between chimpanzees and humans. Is there any evidence for that? No. Um, but we just make that up because that's what it takes for our theory to work. And so, but you've got to ask yourself, if, if it's a poem, why is after their kind repeated? If it's mytho-history, why is after their kind repeated? What's the significance of that? And uh, if it's history, of course, we would also know. It goes on and it says um, in verse 23, there was evening and morning the fifth day. And then on day six, God creates animals and humans. And this is interesting. And then it says in verse, um, in verse uh, 20, <clears throat> or verse uh, 24, and God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. You know, that's that's a repeated repeated phase too. Whenever God is creating, it says, and it was so. It doesn't say, and it started to develop over a long period of time. It just says, and it was so. God says it, and it happens. Verse 25 And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. You know, the the old phrase, hey, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Did you know that that's actually not a dilemma, whether the chicken or egg came first? Because God created chickens, and then chickens laid eggs, and then there were more chickens. Um, so, uh, so, yes, the ch- I, just, I wanted to answer that for you this morning. The next time somebody says, what came first, the chicken or the egg, you can just say, the chicken. Um, and, uh, and some people would look at this, and here's how people will try to fit evolution into this. 
is that we'll read this, and it says, um, it'll say, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And they'll say, see, that's evolution. The earth is going to bring forth living creatures. So it started with inanimate objects, and it turned into um, creatures. That is, that is the kind of thing that people do to try to read evolution into the creation account. That is certainly not what this is saying. Um, so God speaks, and, it's, and it happens, and God saw that it was good. And then we hit uh, the creation of people. And this is something very unique and something very important. When you look at verse 26, and human beings are unique in the earth. What do we learn through the theory of evolution? We learn that human beings are just a higher level of animals, and that on a fundamental level, there's not a difference between human beings and, and animals. And, and you'll have, like you can watch on Facebook, there was some time ago that there was, a, there was an endangered species, a gorilla of some kind, and it was in a zoo, and some little kid crawled into the cage with this, um, with this uh, animal. And the, the people shot the gorilla. They killed the gorilla to save the kid. And people were outraged that they would kill an animal to save a person. And by the way, that is, that is exactly what would flow from the theory of evolution. Like, that's what you would expect because we're all animals. We're all just uh, part of the creatures that are here on earth. And there's not a fundamental life value difference between an animal and a person. But what God tells us is that that is not true. It says here, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. So when we think about just that description of mankind, the first thing you'll notice that in the very beginning of Genesis, we see the Trinity, right? God says, let us make man in our image. You know, we have God creating the heavens and the earth. And in Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul, talking about God the Father, says, God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. By the way, the, the doctrine of creation in Genesis is throughout the Bible. It's not just in the beginning. And, but this, this passage, this verse in Acts, is talking about God the Father, that He created the world and everything in it. And then we see the Holy Spirit in verse 2 of Genesis, where it says, "...and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters." And so, um, the Holy Spirit is there and involved in creation. And then we also see in the New Testament, it tells us that the member of the Trinity that actually created the world was Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God and was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. And then in Colossians, of course, it says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. 
I mean, the theology of Genesis throughout the whole Bible. And we see here the special creation of man. Um, God doesn't just create animals and let them develop into a man. God actually specially, personally creates Adam and Eve, and He makes them in His image. And, in, and then in Genesis chapter 2, which we will look at in more detail, Genesis chapter 2 goes back and actually gives a more detailed account of God's creation of man and woman. But one of the things that's important for us to understand is that God makes man in His own image, male and female, He created them. Men and women are equally created in God's image. And that's significant. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, you ever wonder why there's the death penalty for killing a human being? You know, I one time uh, went to uh, a, 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 a conference, and there was a bunch of attorneys and different people there, and there were people that were opposing the death penalty. And I think that there are good and bad uh, reasons to oppose the death penalty. Um, I think if you want to oppose the death penalty, a good reason for that is to say that our legal system's corrupt and we can't trust the legal system to rightly apply the death penalty. They're going to kill innocent people. They're going to let guilty people go. And that's far too important of a thing. So if a person wanted to make that argument, um, like, I think that that's an argument possibly that could be made. But I heard one person say, um, you don't teach people not to kill by killing. And I, and I just go, well, that's actually not what God says. God says in Genesis 9 verse 6 that if you kill a person, that you are to be executed. And the reason for that is that people are made in God's image. And to kill a human being is to attack God Himself, to attack the Creator. And so the only just punishment for murder is the death penalty. And so um, that's, um, that comes from the fact that people are made in God's image. Genesis 9-6 says the death penalty is because humans are made in God's image. You know, one of the things I think about that is a total tragedy is I was reading, and did you know that, um, that there are some countries that have just about gotten rid of Down syndrome? Like, there's a country that has almost zero Down syndrome. Um, you you want to know how they've gotten rid of Down syndrome? They do genetic tests to find out if babies have Down syndrome, and then they have abortions. Um, the United States uh, kills 67% of people who, of babies that, are, that have Down syndrome. When they test them, um, 67% of Down syndrome babies are killed. Why? That's an evolutionary mindset. Survival of the fittest. Uh, we're not going to just bring a person into this world that's going to be a drain on society. And people don't view an unborn baby as a human being created in God's image, and their value doesn't come from whether or not they're handicapped. Their value comes from the fact that they are a human being made in God's image. So in the United States, 67%. In France, 90, or 77%. Of Down syndrome babies are aborted. In, um, in uh, Denmark, 98% of Down syndrome babies are aborted. 
Um, and, and this is how they described this. this study was, the study that I read was not saying that was a bad thing. The study I read was saying, with the rise of prenatal screening tests across Europe and the United States, the number of babies born with Down syndrome has significantly de- uh, decreased. But a few countries have come close to eradicating Down syndrome, such as Iceland. And so there's, there's countries and just this evolutionary mindset and a failure to understand that people are made in God's image. Now, one of the things that means to be made in God's image is that human beings are God's representative on earth. When you think about what does it mean to be made in God's image, that's actually a very difficult thing to define. And some people would say, well, you're made in God's image if you have a mind, a will, and, and emotions. And I think to myself, um, well, angels have a mind, they have a will, and they have emotions. They are not made in God's image. Or knowing right from wrong. Angels and demons understand right from wrong. They are not made in God's image. And so God's image, while including those things, cannot be reduced to simply that. As, as human beings, we are God's designates. He has put us here on earth to represent Him as we rule the earth. And uh, one of the things you see about being made in God's image, it says, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over livestock and over the, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them male and female. And so having dominion over the earth and managing the earth is God's purpose for mankind. It's one of the reasons God put us here. Um, have you ever heard people say that humans are destroying the earth? The earth is overpopulated. And, and just all these population things. You know, um, there is so much free space on earth. The earth is nowhere near in danger of overpopulation. Like that is another one of those things that gets turned all upside down because people don't understand what God has said about the creation mankind and and God's purpose for humans on the earth. And we have people that will say you cannot disturb the home of a lizard um, to make a home for a person. One of the things that we understand is that we are to care for the earth. You know, the Bible actually tells us that a righteous person, um, it says this in uh, Proverbs 12.10, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beasts but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. God intends us to care for animals, to take care of His creation. We should not destroy and pollute the earth. Um, Those are things that we should care about because God created the world. But the earth and animals do not have priority over human beings. God has given human beings to have dominion over the earth and over animals. It's something God's given us to manage. The next thing we see in verse 28 is that God gives commands and purpose to mankind. It says, and God blessed them, verse 28, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I just want you to know the earth is not full yet. Um, Take a drive up the 14 freeway, just go all the way up, go hours, you know, to the 14 freeway, drive to Sacramento and look around. There's tons of land with no people on it. The earth is not filled. Um, and that, if you take all the people, I was looking at a map this, 
this uh, week, and it just said, if you take all the people on earth and you were to stick them in one spot, it's like one small country in the world um, that, that every single person on earth would fill. There is so much space, and God tells us, fill the earth. But what, what do people who hate God, who have rejected and rebelled against His commands, they say the earth is overpopulated. We need to stop population. Um, it's interesting. God says, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Um, I feel like Michelle and I are obeying that command um, because we didn't just have two kids. We had four. So two of us turned into four. That's multiplication. So anybody who only has two kids, you guys are not obeying God yet. <laughs> Okay, that's a joke. I hope you understand that. Um, but, you know, actually having kids and raising kids to love and honor the Lord is actually one of our purposes on earth. I think one of the, one of the best things that Christians do is to have kids and train them. One of the most important ministries of a church is to evangelize its kids. You know, it's amazing to me the number of people that want to say, oh, have you shared the gospel with your neighbor and are we reaching the community? Are we reaching people out there? But they're not reaching their own family. One of the things I'm so thankful for about CJ, one of the things I thought about, I was a youth pastor for years and I just thought, what a tragedy if I spend my life every day trying to figure out how to reach kids and teenagers with a gospel, and I don't reach my own family. What a disaster that would be. And so I used to have to manage my schedule on a regular basis. I had to say no to really good things. I had to say no to church things. There were times that people got upset with me because I wasn't involved as much as they thought I should. And I had to say no. You know what? I do have a job, and I do have things that I need to do, but my priority is my family. And as believers, we need to prioritize reaching kids. And that's one of the things God wants is for people to have kids and to raise them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. And God is saying, fill the earth. It's, it's amazing. Um, as you do studies on cultures, and this, by the way, is happening in the United States, the more a culture rejects God, you want to know there's two things that happen. Marriage happens less and kids happen less. In fact, in, in uh, Europe, they're actually running ads uh, trying to get people to have more kids um, because it's like they're just looking at themselves and they're going, man, we're going to have serious uh, problems. You know, a lot of the countries, China, for example, huge trouble because they have this aging population and they don't have enough young people coming into, the, into their country to be able to support what's happening. And what I think is interesting is that economically, a country that is not multiplying and filling the earth will be um, economically destroyed. And, and that's what happens. The more um, a country rejects God, rejects the values that God has given, um, the, the more difficulty that country faces. And one of the things that we have, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with not having kids. You know, the Bible actually says being single. And if you're single, if you're not married, God's intention is that you're also not having kids. And so God says that being single and not being married is an advantage for ministry. You have less concerns. You can dedicate yourself completely to serving the Lord. So there's nothing wrong with being single. And it's not wrong to not have kids. But do you have any idea how many people don't have kids because they want more money? 
They want more money. They want a bigger house. They want to be able to go on vacation. And it's actually twisted values that cause people to not have kids. And so, this is, you know, there's people who can't have kids. God's closed that door for them. It's one of the things I thought about um, when Michelle and I were married. I always wanted to have kids. But one of the things that I thought about was the huge responsibility and the weight of having kids and caring for them as, as God's steward. Like, this isn't your kid. This is God's kid. And just the pressure and the weight that I felt about having kids. And one of the things I thought about was, first of all, I really want to have kids. And secondly, if I can't have kids, that would be a relief because that would be a, an, an element of spiritual responsibility, a weight that I wouldn't need to carry. And so God chooses to bless somebody, some people with kids. He chooses to bless some people without kids. Um, when you're in a family and you don't have kids, that is a unique blessing. You have opportunities and resources and ways that you can serve that, that somebody with kids doesn't have. And so if you have kids, that's great. Having kids is a good thing. Not having kids can be a blessing. Sometimes that's a blessing we have that we didn't choose. Um, but often people don't have kids because they have completely inverted values. And they take things that are unimportant, they make those important, and the things that God has said important, they set to the side. But God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing. And then God says in verse 29, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its, fr in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to you, every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth and everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So if you're a vegetarian, <laughs> that's how God originally designed a world, that people were vegetarians. So um, I don't criticize anybody who's a vegetarian, but we'll go back. Eating animals is also okay. Uh, but for now, we haven't got to that part yet. But for now, being a vegetarian is a good thing. And it says, and it was so. And God said everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and there was the sixth day. And then we see here in Genesis 2, God's going to rest on the seventh day. On the seventh day, God's done with creation. Uh, creation's not still developing, it's done. And so one of the things that I would say is if it's poetic, if all these things are poetic, what's being communicated with the poetry? If this is mytho-history, what's being communicated with the mytho-history? And I would say you, you cannot get away from these repeated phrases and from the things that are communicated here. And in verse Genesis 2.1, it says, "...the heavens and the earth were finished, all of the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work." that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. You know, one of the things that we see is that God, this is actually a part of the Ten Commandments. When God's giving commands, he says, you are to keep the seventh day holy. Why? because God created the world in six days and on the seventh day He rested, so you do all of your work 
and on the seventh day, rest. So God created rest for man. And I think one of the things is you've got to really think through uh, the way that God describes creation and then the way He connects that to the seven days that we are to work for six days and rest on the seventh, like that is tied together. Um, and so God is doing this, and He's actually doing it. He's creating a world, and He has us in mind, and He is set, setting an example of working for six days and resting, and then He tells us, you are to do the same thing. Work six days and rest on the seventh. Uh, it says this in Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Um, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, your sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. So in Exodus, God repeats that He made the earth in six days and then He rested. Therefore, you shall work six days and you shall rest. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day, and He made it holy. So God, that's, a, that's an important thing for us to think about. When you think about the whole issue of the Sabbath, um, why do people work seven days a week? People that work seven days a week, you make more money. Like you want to give up a seventh of your income. And so it's hard not to work seven days sometimes. So there's an element of trusting God. One of the things that Jesus says, the Sabbath gets all messed up in the New Testament, but Jesus says that God made the Sabbath for man so that we would rest, so that we would enjoy God, so that we would trust Him. You actually see that when God's feeding Israel manna, and He would send manna um, during the Exodus, and He said, go out for six days and collect food, but on the sixth day, collect enough for two days. And, um, and so, uh, they would go out and they would collect and they always had enough and no manna came on the seventh day. And so the, even in that, trusting God to provide. So when we look at some takeaways, just let's real quick just think about some takeaways here. Um, if we think about re repeated phrases, one of them is that over and over it says God said. Um, you have clearly communicated here God's dominance, His power, and that when He speaks, He is obeyed creation obeys God. What should you take away from that? You should obey God. When He speaks, um, you should obey. And it was so. Creation immediately obeys God. We should immediately obey God. You think about the according to its kind. Um, what, what's the takeaway from that? You know, in, in three days, um, this phrase is repeated ten times after its kind. There is an emphasis about things reproducing after their kind. It's amazing the gymnastics people do to try to make that not say that, what it is saying. Uh, that's a, that is a, an important thing. Uh, even within evolution, there's punk, punctuated equilibrium, which is a theory that they've brought because there's the absence of transitionary forms. And they say, well, things just are stable for a long time, and then all of a sudden things appear. That's the reason that there's no evidence for the transitionary stages. Um, but no, uh, there's no evidence because God, everything reproduces after its kind. Um, six times the, the phrase, it is good. Um, every single day, six days, there was evening, there was morning, there was another day. And then God made. 
That's another repeated phrase, is God personally forming His creation. When you think about the theological ramifications, God owns everything. When you look at the world, God is unfathomable. When you think about His omniscience, how much God knows. Um, when When you think about how vast the universe is, and then you think about how tiny the universe is, like think about how many molecules there are. And to know that God placed every molecule in the universe. God knows where every molecule in the universe is. God is sustaining every molecule in the universe. When you start to think about those kinds of things, and then you're facing a difficulty in your life, you're thinking to yourself, God, I know you said I should do this, but from my perspective, disobeying you seems like it would be a better thing. Uh, We just go, no, God's God's omniscience, His knowledge, His wisdom is unfathomable. I can trust Him no matter how things seem to me. God's omnipotence. If He created all the stars, oh, (laughs) and the stars, if He created all the stars, there's nothing in your life that He can't control, that He is not having power over. His omnipresence, that God is everywhere that you can know that no matter where I go, no matter what's going on my li- in my life, I am never alone. Think about God's goodness in creation. We have not even scratched the surface on God's goodness, but God is good. And as we read through um, the book of Genesis, you are going to see one story after another where people disobey God and God does good to them. Things disastrous things happen where people look at the situations and they go, this is terrible, and then God brings good out of it. And so, one of the things that we're going to see is that God is good. God is both imminent and transcendent. Transcendent means He's over and above His creation, but imminent, we're going to see how personal God is. And we saw that already, but when we look at the creation of man, God is personally involved in the details of your life. The Bible says God knows the numbers of the hairs on your head. And of course, God is amazingly good. As we close today, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And one of the things I want to remind us is that um, God always works through history. Theology is based in history. And there are many people that as they read the New Testament, they'll say, you know, the Bible says that Jesus was born of a virgin, but it actually doesn't matter if Jesus was born of a virgin. Uh, there's a theological idea behind that that's important to us, but it doesn't actually matter. Or that things in the Gospels happen the way they said. Or somebody may even say that the resurrection of Jesus isn't important, whether or not it historically happened. It just communicates spiritual truth that God wants us to know. One of the things that you find as you look at Scripture is never in Scripture is um, the historical reality of the things that we base our theology in unimportant. Look what it says here. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Um, History is something that God uses to, to develop theology. He's creating theology as He's working things out in history. And constantly in the New Testament, we are pointed back to, to historical occurrences to base our theology on. Let's, um, 
let's uh, consider this as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that we celebrate here when we take the bread in the cup, and, and you can get up and just go get bread and get, get some juice, and you can take that. But what we're celebrating is that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for our sin. He shed His blood. We stand before God because of the righteousness of Jesus, not because of our own good works. And Jesus was physically killed. He actually died. And there are people that come up with all kinds of ideas about the resurrection, that Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. He wasn't really dead. He revived in the tomb. What I want you to know is no, the Bible historically says that Jesus died, and He really did die. And God really did raise Him from the dead. And that is what we base our faith on, the person and work of Jesus. Let's read what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that our standing before you is not based on our works. Lord, we stand before you based on your work on the cross. You are the God of the universe who made everything, who took on flesh, who lived a perfect life and who died on the cross on our behalf. And Lord, in the same way that we believe that you created the world, Lord, we put our faith in you. We trust that you will save us because you told us that you will. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to think deeply about that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in your name. Amen.